The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for November 26, 2022. It is your old pal, Justin Robert Young. We got a lot of talk about the house, the house. We have some boys behaving badly in this house. Yes. Two developments in two different congressional lives, specifically that of Henry Cuellar of Texas and Matt Gates of Florida. One of them was raided by the FBI. The other's ex-girlfriend might be going uh, you know, to the to the state side plea bargaining for an immunity deal so she can testify against her ex-boyfriend. We will dig into both of those in a bit. As predicted, as predicted, we got some feedback on the Brian Sack interview uh, last week. You know, I mean... (sighs) The the funniest thing, if there is a funny thing about uh, the emotion and passion for which we will display later in this podcast, is that I never really thought of Brian Sack as a particularly spicy culture warrior. Uh, I I thought of him as just kind of a, a a funny guy who was you know just kind of slightly right of center. And, and, and yet, man, uh, whenever we talk about, uh, his thoughts on, uh, uh, diversity intervention and, uh, his personal experience, the larger issue, well, boy, howdy, does it just, uh, rustled the jimmies. Uh, so we will, we will get to that in a second. We will also be welcoming in, uh, our betting correspondent, Evan Scrimshaw, is going to help us uh, navigate some of the uh, House retirements in both uh, the Democratic side and the Republican side. What they mean, what they don't mean. And you want to know what? I want to ask him something because he's Canadian. He also does a lot of. Uh, uh, analysis on British politics, on Australian politics. What Canada, Britain, and Australia all have in common is a parliamentary system. While I think both Scrim and I are similarly befuddled by the uh, movement of the Biden administration and similarly whatever strategy might underlie it, somebody in my Twitch chat on Monday made a very, very interesting comment that the Biden administration is acting more like the prime minister 
of a tenuous coalition in a parliamentary system. That if you don't think of them as one party and Biden is uh, commandeering the bully pulpit that has a majority and therefore we should understand that that whatever he wants, he should get. If he says it goes, then it will. Everybody needs to fall in line or pay the price, which is how we tend to think of things here in the go big or go home U.S. of A. And instead understand it more like a coalition government in a parliamentary system where everybody is afraid of stepping on the wrong toe for fear that the entire coalition falls apart and there is nobody in power, then it makes a little bit more sense. Now, obviously there are differences to that, but we're going to ask Scrimshaw about it a little bit later in the show. But first. Esta tierra le dio una oportunidad a mi familia. Por eso siempre lucharé por el sur de Texas. Soy Henry Cuellar y apruebo that is a Spanish language advertisement for Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar, who represents the 28th District of Texas, encompassing San Antonio and the border town of Laredo. It was in Laredo that this happened last week. Also developing tonight, FBI agents have seized items from a Texas congressman's home. Henry Cuellar represents the 28th Congressional District, covering parts of San Antonio and Laredo. Agents seized plastic bins worth of material and computers, as well as at one point, according to reporters on the scene, taking pictures of Representative Cuellar's vehicles. And in the intervening time, we found out that the raid centered around this. CBS News, the FBI is gathering evidence for a D.C. grand jury looking into possible crimes involving American businessmen and the oil-rich country of Azerbaijan. Very honestly, we need to do our job. Congressman Henry Cuellar co-chairs the Azerbaijan Congressional Caucus. He's met with the ambassador several times, even in San Antonio. Now, a congressman being investigated by the FBI is something. It is another something when you remember that the first clip that we played was a campaign advertisement. Cuellar is not only currently up for re-election, early voting in his primary begins on Valentine's Day. The primary itself is two weeks after that on March 1st. His biggest challenger is progressive darling Jessica, Jessica Sinceros, who lost to Cuellar two years ago by only 3.5 points. You can only imagine that this is manna from heaven for her. Um, it's already been around 24 hours since the investigation started, since the raid started happening. And we still don't have any details. Um, I mean, I think that we as residents of Texas 28th Congressional District need to know what is happening, what our Congress members being accused of. So. A raid by the FBI only weeks before early voting in an election year. What the hell is this all about? Well, Cuellar is the co-chair of the Congressional Azerbaijan Caucus and repeatedly met with Azerbaijan officials, including the ambassador to Azerbaijan, Ilin Suleimanov. At the heart of the matter seems to be Cuellar's relationship with the Azerbaijani state-owned gas company, Sokar. 
S-O-C-A-R. It's an acronym. Cuellar has previously taken trips to the country and met with executives of the company. And then he later spearheaded congressional support for a pipeline that benefited SOCAR. Although all previous trips that Cuellar has taken up until now, at least, have been approved by the House Ethics Committee, later trips organized by some of Cuellar's known contacts have been seen as misrepresentative. Specifically, foreign interests are not allowed to pay for your trips. You have to have another group pay for American elected representatives to come overseas. So I, I, I think that it's, it's a designation between like an official state trip or if it's a business trip. Basically, there needs to be a, a formal distinction between the two. And later investigation found that the Azerbaijani gas company effectively laundered money through a shell company to get these people over there, to get representatives over there. Again, as of right now, the trip that Cuellar went on is still at least on the up and up, but later trips that used almost the exact point of view uh, uh, have not. So, Furthermore, uh, uh, Cuellar has taken $3,500 in campaign contributions from the man that organized all those trips. $3,500 is money. It's not a lot of money. I don't think that's the kind of money that you would, you know, endanger your career for, but who knows? What is known for sure is that the FBI does not like to investigate sitting politicians. They certainly do not like to investigate them during election years, and they most definitely do not like to investigate them in the window where they could affect a primary. For this to happen, either there is fire behind the smoke or the FBI has hilariously overreached. The reality for Quagar is that he needs to put this behind him as soon and as much as possible. Is this some red tape about an investigation that barely involves him that needs to be cleared up? An unfortunate side effect of all the regulations that come along with international relations? Or maybe a rogue business associate for whom Cuellar may have met once and talked to for five seconds at a party? Not a big deal, folks. Move it along. Whatever the story, he needs to settle on it quick. As for his opponent, Sinceros needs to make this as big of a story as possible. This is a gift from the god of politics, and she cannot be shy about taking advantage of it. Speaking of not being shy about taking advantage of things, let's talk Matt Gates. Enter Gates's ex-girlfriend. Uh, they were in an open or polyamorous relationship for a period of time, and she was with him when he is alleged by you know, so far anonymous accusers, uh, Greenberg among them, that 
he had had sex with a 17 year old in 2017. She was also with him on a Bahamas trip where a bunch of friends of Gates's and her friends went. And this is being examined to see if it violated what's called the Mann Act, which prohibits uh, taking people across state lines to engage in prostitution. She was also on the phone with him and another woman uh, who's a witness in the case where uh, investigators believe Gates may have obstructed justice and she may have helped him. And that has come to a head here, we believe, and we're basing on on sources and also just the, the timing of it, where she was facing a potential obstruction of justice charge, Gates's ex, uh, in return for her not being charged with that. It appears she is close to, if not has already struck an immunity deal. That is friend of the show, Mark Caputo, formerly of Politico, now with NBC, describing what might be a rejuvenated case against the Florida firebrand Congressman Gates. Many in Gates's orbit uh, apparently believe that the case against him was stalled. We've talked about this on episodes in the past, largely because the two main voices against the congressman are his former wingman, Joel Greenberg, who, just to give folks a brief reminder, has already been on record trying to lie about and slander an enemy as a pedophile in the past and also once started a fire in a government-owned building because he wanted to mine crypto too hard, as well as another woman who has allegedly already testified, the woman for whom he may or may not have had sex with when she was 17, who now works in some form of online online pornography, making her, for better or worse, a less-than-ideal witness. However, if Gates' ex-girlfriend were to testify, were to testify, which she reportedly has, that may or may not be a horse of a different color, depending on what she told investigators. Let's reset things for a second. Gates faces three possible charges. Sex trafficking, since allegedly he induced a minor to cross state lines for sex. The Mann Act, which also prohibits transporting a woman across state lines for prostitution and obstruction of justice. Should everything that's been reported be true, the biggest issue at play will be proving that Gates had sex with the woman underage or obstructed justice to hide it. And more interestingly, drawing a legal line between what is a sugar baby and what is a prostitute. And are they, in the eyes of the law, the same? If, as I'm sure we all are, totally unaware of what these sugar baby relationships might be, they are found on websites like SeekingArrangements.com. That's where Gates and Greenberg found this woman in question. According to the copy on their own website, quote, sugar daddies and sugar mamas can meet sugar babies by honestly sharing expectations for a relationship up front, end quote. Sounds healthy. 
Well, I'm sure that every single one of these relationships are as unique as each snowflake fallen from the winter sky. The common denominator in general with these is that the richer and often older side of the arrangement gives gifts and cash to the younger side who are willing to provide companionship and arched eyebrow more. A reminder also that Gates sent Greenberg money via Venmo with the girl in questions uh, a seeking arrangement screen name saying, go get her. Greenberg then had a habit of putting those, uh, 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 you know, divided portions of that money uh, to other women via Venmo with the titles school and tuition. So does that count as prostitution? Or is that just spending money for somebody that is enjoying an opulent lifestyle and might enjoy some casual sex? According to Caputo at the top of the segment, Gates and his then-girlfriend were in an open-slash-polyamorous relationship. The ex-girlfriend in question not only might have been or was allegedly on some of the trips that are at question here, but also may or may not have been on the phone when Gates might have directed an obstruction of justice. So, we will see, but it looks like the the hopes from the Gates crowd that this investigation had totally sputtered out might not be the case. Baby, we got some mail here. Uh, <laughs> you know, before we get into things, uh, I don't ever want to be afraid of topics because I believe when we begin to stop looking at divisive topics, stop looking at emotional topics, stop looking at passionate topics, then we are unnecessarily leaving a vector of the political calculus off. And for me to do that would be cowardice. You guys listen to me because I try to do my best to analyze, handicap, and prognosticate at times various different political realities. To do that, I need to know what the battlefield looks like. And so, while I, I try not to indulge in culture war pornography, where we just relish in every little uh, 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 juicy, fatty bit of a, a culture war argument and diagnose every actor's uh, uh, various different statements. I do need to look at them. I do need to understand them both personally and professionally. And so it is with that, that we presented the Brian Sack interview last week. And that I read the community responses 
that we have received a sampling of them uh, in the intervening few days. Gunner writes, I wanted to write in and address some of the issues with your latest episode raised for me, a black man in America. My first issue is not, or my first issue is with your continuing support of this man's side of the argument. You have not uh, presented the perspective of a parent of color who values these attempts to teach about the systemic nature of the issues, or you could talk to the kids. Interview both sides, please. In a nutshell, I've always struggled with your show because your whiteness comes through in blatant ways in every episode. To be clear, I'm not saying this is a dig, just a fact that I notice. What I mean is your show would improve dramatically if you included voices of others than white people. I've almost sent the same message multiple times, but rationalized your approach as being about the majorities. But this is not what you're repping when you allow guests to spew extremely hurtful and offensive opinions without check or challenge. There is another perspective, and you should seek and spread understanding of that side as well. Another personal note, I'm stepping away from the show for a bit. This episode hurt me, not offended per se, but genuinely hurt my feelings. I was sad to not hear a single pushback to a man who says things like BIPOC or whatever you can't keep track these days. I always felt like I could grab beer with you someday and have a wonderful conversation about politics and feel that I was in good company. Not anymore. To know that you can laugh along and giggle at what, in my perspective, is a movement to acknowledge those who have been traditionally marginalized and made to adapt to white spaces was just hurtful. Jim writes, just wanted to thank you for having a diverse set of interviews on your podcast. Many of your interviewees are on the liberal side of the spectrum, which is good for me to engage with intellectually, since I tend to be on the more conservative side of things. But it is refreshing to know that you are willing to engage intellectually with people who have opinions that happen to me on more so on the right side of the aisle. Unfortunately, not many podcasts today are brave enough to engage with all sides of the political debate. But yours is. I really enjoyed your interview with Mr. Sack, and I look forward to more interviews with like-minded folk in the future. David writes, don't bring him back. He was a terrible guest who lacked any provable facts, and some of the ones he stated were incorrect. I live in Virginia. He spouted the anti-vax, anti-mask storyline. At least bring on a critical thinker, not a puppet, who is complaining about a private school he is paying to send his kids to. A friend who will remain anonymous because I did not ask his permission to say this uh, texted me. Oof. I really don't like Brian Sachs take on race. He then followed it up by sending me an episode of This American Life about critical race theory. Payne writes, Brian's points of contention didn't seem particularly well directed to a particular party. And certain points, he was mad about school board members, teachers, teaching consultants. Very broad anger, in my opinion. I also found this funny that he said, quote, if you don't treat kids right, the parents will come after you. It is quite contrarian to the treat service sector employees well. I feel bad for teachers who are now part of a proxy war. In Missouri, the attorney general is suing school districts for COVID measures, contact tracing and mandatory quarantines and mask mandates. Finally, Matthew wrote, Robert Reich's economic policies have always rubbed me the wrong way, but I'm not about to send you a complaint email just because you had a representative from his think tank on the show recently. I accept that positions exist and learning about them is not going to kill me. 
I really appreciate that there is somebody who is willing to to present multiple sides of an issue and tries to do it honestly. That is, unfortunately, a unique niche. All of those points of view are valid. (laughs) You are allowed to yell whatever you want at me. You are allowed to consume the show exactly how you please. We are in a buyer's market for content. Never has there been so much. Never has it been so good. It is up to me, the creator, as it is for all creators, to continue to maintain a bond between you, the listener, and the content that we create. So. I don't want to respond to any of those in particular. And that's why this isn't really like a mailbag segment in the way that we've traditionally done it. What I do want to do is have a quick conversation that we don't normally have on PX3. And that is one about my political feelings. I tend to keep these not hidden, but not high on the list of priorities of what kind of content I am looking to make, largely because I don't think it's particularly relevant to me giving you guys the best analysis of the situation that I possibly can. Part of that is handicapping which side of an issue has momentum. So if I were to lead with my opinion, then either implicitly or explicitly, that might taint the final product, at least in your ears. But since we're here (laughs) and and, and we we already kind of have a, a bit of discontention, let's have a bit of a conversation. When we talk about systemic racism, you can focus on, for me, the system or the racism. The racism is something that is a little bit more, I don't know, I tend to use the word cosmic, but it is it is beyond the the simple idea of passing a law. You can pass a law and say no one's allowed to be racist and and people are still going to be racist, right? That is about tolerance. That is about the content of your character. I believe that these kinds of issues are made better by contact, empathy, and humanity. But the racism part is different from the system part. The system part is affected by our laws. It is affected by decisions that we make. And I very much believe That there is, should, and will continue to be a debate of our understanding of exactly which systems we are talking about when we talk about systemic racism. And let me make this clear. I do believe that there is systemic racism. You can't look at the history of how institutions in power, from sheriff's departments, to housing boards, all the way down, have reacted to people 
on a racial level and not say that those systems were not corrupted. Now, does that mean that the entire system is corrupted? Does that mean that there are local systems that have gone rogue? There, the scope is where I hope we continue to have these conversations. To be totally honest, I think that they're vital. I think that these are the things that make society go. I think that this is progress. Specifically, at any phase in progress, you need this conversation. It needs to happen. And it needs to happen specifically if it's going to stick. Obviously, it is inflamed with passion. And there is passion that I don't want to step on. I can't speak from a black person's perspective. I can't speak from a parent's perspective. In fact, I can't speak from anybody's perspective except for my own. And so that's what I try to do. And when I don't have a personal contradiction to something, I tend to believe that the perspective is worthwhile to hear in its own words. What very much concerns me is that we understand what our systems, the systems that we live under and that govern us are doing and are doing for us. And I do mean that capital U.S. I didn't realize that was the United States, but I guess that works as well. We should talk about this kind of stuff. We should have an open and honest dialogue about it. And while this show may not dedicate the most amount of time to it, it is honestly what I believe. And there we go. transition it's a weird transition moment with an earnest conversation about racial dialogue goes into a crass commercial appeal for money for money why don't you give me your money i don't know when i'll stop this song because it shields me from how awkward everything is uh uh guys um I mean, what can you say? <laughs> oh, that's so awkward. So awkward to go from just you just you're talking about things and people are angry and, and people are upset and you have to listen to an hour long episode of This American Life. And, and then next thing you know, you have to go and ask your ask your listeners to give you money. We don't have ads on this show. It would have been, well, I don't know. I don't know if it would have been better or worse if I had just immediately went into an ad for a mattress or something. Like that would have really been hanging. Like if, if it wasn't just me saying that, you know, take politics seriously.com, you can go there for $3 a week. You can get the two bonus episodes each and every week. That means you get four episodes of PX3. Uh, each and every week into your feed, private RSS feed, you just put it in your, podcatcher set it and forget it like if i didn't do that 
And instead, I was like, guys, I got to tell you, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I've, I've been laying on this mattress and I thought mattresses were terrible. I, I'd, I had laid on the floor my entire life. But boy, this brand mattress, it has super suckle technology that, you know, fits into the size of a of a matchbox car and then is delivered in four easy installments and buzzes every 15 minutes so you can change sides. Uh, a reminder that a good mattress shows you that you can have good blood pressure. It's a check engine light for your heart. Uh, hey guys, you know a, a mattress or a, a thinning mattress is is a sign that you need this mattress. Like that would be more awkward. It would be more awkward than saying that you could just go to takepoliticsseriously.com, support the show, get bonus content. Very simple idea. Uh, you guys have changed my life. Thank you. Hopefully people like me and don't hate me. <laughs> what a weird world. What a weird world. Right? I'm alone in a in my closet recording this. And I'm This is a roller coaster of emotions. Give me money? Racial dialogue. Money? Dialogue. All right. Now I'm just making this longer than it needs to be because I'm sinking into the awkwardness. I now just have, I have awkwardness flowing out of my nose and ears. And I just can't stop wallowing around in it. It's probably tedious at this point. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Support me, please. Our guest today is no stranger to the program. He is a election betting analyst for the lines. He has his own Substack. He is the one, the only Evan Scrimshaw. Welcome back to the show, buddy. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. So on my Twitch chat on Monday, there was a chatter who actually had a very, very interesting perspective. And I'm like, I gotta ask Scrim about this because you not only are from Canada, but also along with American politics, you cover extensively Australian politics and uh, uh, UK politics. I mean, all politics, right? But a lot of parliamentary systems. And while at least on Twitter, it, it seems... Well, here, let me let me not guess. Uh, would it be safe to say that me and you share a bafflement at the strategy of the Biden administration throughout the first year? Yes, that is entirely correct. OK, so the 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 chatter said this. It makes slightly more sense if you think of their strategy, not as the strategy of what we would traditionally think of an American president who has control of both houses of Congress, tenuous though it might be, though it might be in the Senate, but rather somebody who is at the head of a very tenuous coalition government in a parliamentary system that is very, very, very scared that any one move is going to undo the entire coalition. 
Now, I don't have a lot of experience with parliamentary systems, so it seemed interesting to me, uh, uh, but you do. Does that in any way ring true for you? It does, but I don't think that that means that Biden has done a good job doing it, right? The (laughs) analogy that initially came to my mind, there were two of them, the Julia Gillard minority government in Australia from 2010 to 13, and then the Stephen Harper second minority in Canada from 08 to 11. Both of those were very tenuous minorities in Canada. Harper had three parties who tried to replace him in late 2008 and then had to back down because basically that coalition of chaos was going to get hammered at the, at the polls. And Gillard had to get support from conservative independents to get over the line after losing their party majority for in the 2010 election. Um Kind of. But the thing about that is, generally speaking, you get your commitments down on paper first. You don't try an overly ambitious agenda compared to what you can get. Yeah. And you focus on whatever executive action you can do. And Biden has been not nearly as aggressive as many Democrats want on executive actions, which would be one of the things you do if you don't see a legislative path forward. Yeah. Biden has been more antagonistic publicly towards Joe Manchin than you'd normally be if you consider Joe Manchin a sort of Tony Windsor or Rob Oakeshott-esque figure, which uh, the four Australians who listen to this podcast will know entirely <laughs> what I mean by that comparison. Conservative okay. independents from rural ridings. We are districts. we are we are very much of 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 the Dennis Miller philosophy of never apologize for the references. There's going to be somebody in there that's going to get it. So so keep yes. rolling. Uh, like if you consider Joe Manchin to basically be, uh, you know, a conservative independent from a rural state who has come over, you know, uh, Julia Gillard was not as antagonistic, especially as they were at the end of 2020 or 2021, sorry, um, to Joe Manchin and Biden never got commitments on paper. He never got a plan forward. He just kind of assumed that he'd be able to get through it. Right. The trust me to progressives to get them to, to pass uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was based on an assumption that he could get mansion and then he couldn't. And the problem generally with the Biden administration is there's no, there is no sort of like cohesive long-term thinking because the reason Stephen Harper managed to get a majority government after his minority. And the reason why the Gillard minority managed to actually be a reasonable success on policy terms before getting smashed when Kevin Rudd took back over and, and losing the 2013 election was because they were both long-termist and they were able to get things done and manage the party well. Joe Biden hasn't shown an ability to manage his caucus well at all. I mean, if anything, it, it seems that everybody has about the same complaint, which is that you promised me X and you didn't deliver Y, largely because you promised the person across the hall the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, the voting rights stuff was just like, I don't even understand what that, I, I mean, that, that, that. that to me. I, the only thing that makes sense on any kind of logistical level, and even as I say it, please do not take it as an endorsement, is that it was a stink bomb to get away from the embarrassment of build back better. And, and that is like. 
you know, pooping your pants to, uh, uh, you know, uh, get away from the fact that you had your identity stolen. Like, like it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but, but like, that's the only logistical thing is like, let's get people talking about something else. So it doesn't look so embarrassing that we put so much political capital for a year and tank the momentum of celebrating the infrastructure win over what effectively looks like a total nothing. Yeah, maybe I don't like, I just, uh, I talked about it on my show. Like it's, it's one of those things where like, if they're trying to play politics, right. If they're just trying to like raise the salience of voting rights so that like black voters are like reminded of the threat of the GOP or whatever, like you have to be more explicit about this and you have to actually show a path forward and they haven't done it. And so it's leaving everybody, I think with the same collective response of like, okay, so we just did a thing. We just lost a vote. <laughs> and now what? Well, yeah. And that's, and, and, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I, I tend to not be fatalistic when it comes to politics, because I think that, that, you know, the, the pendulum always swings and, and the, the biggest mistake that the media, in my opinion, tends to make is overcorrecting and overreacting to various different micro issues. At the same time, you know, as we speak, right before we went live, Washington Post has a story that at least based on some of the quotes that I'm seeing on Twitter is kind of a hit piece on Ron Klain, the chief of staff. Like the knives are out right now. Like it, it doesn't seem like there's much cohesion at all in, 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 in the Democratic Party, either in the Senate, in the House, in the executive branch there. And, and, and uh, I don't know who is going to stand up and say, Hey, everybody calm down. We need to get on the same page and get something done before we get slaughtered in the midterms. Yeah. Well, the problem is, is that there is no one to do that because Biden is weak. I mean, he's at the lowest approval point of his presidency. Kamala Harris has been the, was the previous subject of all the hit pieces that are now yeah. coming for Ron Klain. So she doesn't have a lot of authority inside the party right now. Uh, Joe Manchin doesn't really want to tell the party to calm down because if he really was that concerned with the party getting slaughtered, he would, you know, actually be engaging on new talks on Build Back Better, better or something. And, you know, Schumer and Pelosi haven't exactly had good last few months, right? Like no. Pelosi passed House Build Back Better for nothing because a bill, like she passed a bill that we all knew was DOA in the Senate, even if we thought the yes. Senate was going to pass yes. something. Yeah. Uh, House, House Build Back Better was, was DOA. And Schumer couldn't get Manchin on board for Build That Better and then did the voting rights thing, which, again, no one knows what they're doing. There. So yeah, there, there's no one there's no one to have the authority and there's no one to tell Democrats to calm down. And the problem is their president's now got an is now 12 points underwater on approval and getting worse. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, it was it was when that when that outlier poll that had him at 33 came out. And the White House pushed back against it and pushed back the methodology. And I don't I, I didn't see even, you know, conservative poll people say anything other than the fact that it was an outlier. It was one of those things where it's like, well, you know. You better hope it remains an outlier because it doesn't look like the trajectory is is doing well. I mean, like, you know, he's 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 in trouble, which brings us to, I think, what what the, the bulk of our conversation is going to be about. And that is what's going to happen in the House. So. Uh, uh, obviously midterms are coming up. We have primaries that are, are beginning really in the next few weeks, early voting in the next few weeks as we, uh, 
covered at the beginning of the show with some of the <laughs> some of the stuff that's happening with a uh, 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 Quayar down there in Texas. But where is your large scale idea of where things are going to end up in the house by the end of this year? So the GOP are going to retain the house or going to gain the house. Like that's, that's pretty inarguable to me at this point, uh, just because the so Democrats have actually had a better redistricting cycle than a lot of people expected, even better than I expected. And I was always a relative optimist on this point. Yeah. The thing for the GOP is the reason the GOP's redistricting hasn't gone as well as they expected is because they got a lot of the low hanging fruit out last time. Yeah. So you can't, uh, we're recording this the day after Alabama uh, f- federal court tossed the Alabama map, but let's say that the Supreme Court overrules it and the Alabama map is what they said, 6-1, right? Well, you can't gerrymander a 6-1 further than a 6-1, and that's there already <laughs> did that one last cycle. Yeah. So you end up in a position where, like, I've got the GOP projected, I think, right now for 225 seats. Uh, that that projection will obviously change between now and election day. It'll change yeah. when we get the new Ohio maps and we get resolution on the North Carolina maps and we see how aggressive New York is. But the GOP will gain seats. They're not going to gain nearly as many as a lot of people are thinking because gerrymandering on both sides reduces the number of competitive seats. But the GOP will win the House. Win, that, know, that, that seems to be the top line. Seats. Yeah, that, that, that seems to be the top line of result that I've seen in some of the redistricting uh, conversations is that really what's what's happened is a Democrats have not gotten slaughtered and b uh, that it has really been more about solidifying safe seats like that that seems to be the large takeaway is that m- semi safe seats are now safer and there are less purple seats in general. I mean the like I know Democrats never didn't end up flipping any of those those Texas House seats last time yeah but there were a series of seats where had Democrats had the kind of night that, you know, the polls had been saying before election night, there were a wave of competitive Texas House seats. Uh, Beth Van Doyne in the 24th by a bunch of Austin and in, in, in Dallas area seats were, were competitive. And what the GOP did in redistricting was they gave Democrats a new Austin seat. Yep. They took one of, they took the other new seat that they got for themselves. They solidified two of the most vulnerable Democrats in Colin Allred and Lizzie Fletcher in Dallas and Houston, respectively. And then they just drew every Republican a safe seat. Yeah. Like, again, Beth Van Doyne in the 24th, like that seat might get competitive by the end of the decade. But the because the because Texas didn't really go for cementing their power too far because Georgia Republicans only drew one extra seat for themselves as opposed to trying for a maximalist 10-4 approach. They've just drawn maps that are not going to change very much and that have locked in a decent number of Democratic seats. Which I think creates its own existential conversation on whether or not safe seats are good for, uh, uh, you know, the the health of of the, the union. But Whatever. We'll figure that out in the next 10 years. Uh, Let's talk about one of the bellwethers that normally comes along with a change in power, and that is retirements. Obviously, in the House, a very chaotic institution. These things tend to happen at a larger rate than the Senate. But uh, uh, where are we out right now with retirements on the Democratic side and retirements on the Republican side? So. People have two different calculations for this. Some people will quote just the sheer number of of Democrats or Republicans not running for re-election to their House district. Okay, I only go by people who are not running for office again, because I don't think 
Mo Brooks or uh, Charlie Crist count as retirements, right? They're both yeah. seeking statewide office, which would so these obviously are, be a promotion. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, or, so, or there, and there are some because of redistricting people whose districts have gone away and they're running for another district. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Those are those are also uh, like those are those are also excluded from this calculation. So yeah. twenty Democrats and six Republicans are retiring from the House and are not seeking reelection to any other political office. 20 Democrats, six Republicans, as of when we're recording this right now. Um, we've had a few more Democrats retire in the last few days. Um, Jeremy Nary out of California, Jim Langevin out of Rhode Island. And I think the big one that's that's sort of caused a little concern amongst Democrats is Ed Perlmutter out in Colorado, because the retirements are in sort of like two different forms for Democrats. And, and one of them is mm-hmm. sort of more concerning for like individual districts, right? Like Perlmutter's in a competitive ish Denver seat. So you'd rather an incumbent there. But the fact that 20 Democrats have said, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want one more term, not a great sign for the chances of winning the majority. How many of those are in competitive districts like like how many of them are are possibly going to go to a republican as opposed to just having another democrat fill it so ron kind retired because he was gonna like lose his seat let's just be honest uh in wisconsin uh jk butterfield is like his district kind of got screwed over by redistricting and it's funny now the north carolina has there's there's litigation on that map. Stephanie Murphy in Florida could be one where it hurts them, depending on how the Florida maps are redrawn. And I know DeSantis is suing over the maps. Like that's one where her running, like she might have ended up in a Republican in a seat where she can win anyways. So it's hard to yeah. say. And then Perlmutter, I think it's the fourth Republican, fourth Democrat, where you're really looking at them and going, yeah, that that like substantially changes my chances of winning the seat. But otherwise, it's mostly safe seat members. With the Biden approval number being what it is, well, here, hold on, wait, but, but before before we get to that, let me let me get to a philosophical thing for you. When you're looking at this from just a results oriented perspective, how much of a midterm is the all politics are local issue? How much of it is tied to the national conversation for you? Most of it's tied to the national conversation in terms of aggregate results, right? Um, obviously, you'll get members who who survive that, you know, air quotes shouldn't based on the environment, right? I'm thinking about Will Hurd winning in Texas 23 in 2018. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, a 40-seat gain was basically on par for what you'd expect for, you know, a president with a 42% approval or whatever Donald Trump had by midterm day Yeah, last time. And, you know, uh, based on the maps that we had, like that was just par for the course at that point. And you might get local variation and that local variation is going to cause a lot of people to have a lot of fun on Twitter for the next, what, eight months, I guess, 10 months. But <laughs> in terms of the raw numbers, like if Biden doesn't get his approval up substantially, like every all the analysis I can do from now until November, whatever day, of the whatever day in November it is, uh, all of it's a waste of time. Because just, just because, bad, yeah, the 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 Democrats are dead. For you, where is you know uh, the like okay danger? This is going to be an absolute disaster. Strata for the approval rating. Is it like 
above 45, okay, we're doing okay. 45 to 40, you're in real danger. Anything in 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 the 30s is an absolute, you know, uh, a total debacle. So anything anything with a three in front of it, Democrats are losing three Senate seats, maybe four, and they're losing 25 House seats. Uh, 40 to like 44, it's not going to be great for them. And, you know, you're probably looking at, you know, 20 House losses. I think if he can get it, to, if he can get it from like 44 to 47, Democrats will have a decent night and they'll be pretty clearly House favorites in 2024. And 47 and above, I think they've got a fighting chance. And that'd be a pretty big bounce back, at least, uh, you know, from what we've seen. But you never know going forward. Uh, are there any specific house races that you have your eye on? Anything that, that's particularly competitive or interesting? So I've written about this before, but I think one of the races that's going to be super interesting. And obviously, uh, we don't have the Ohio maps, as I'm saying this right now. We don't. We We know that the... We know they've been tossed, but we don't have the new ones. So, and, and by the way, let me let me point this out. Like, this is weird, right? Like, like the, all this is late because of the pandemic. All these these map things are normally settled before we start talking about primaries. Yeah, no. Usually, the maps are all settled in the first year of the presidency, but yeah. the census data was delayed because there were issues with how the census went because of the pandemic, and so everything just got pushed back. And so now the maps have had to be drawn on either accelerated time time scales or they've just they were drawn on normal time like they were drawn in the same amount of time but that clock started much later and so when you draw the maps later the lawsuits come later and yeah everything's just pushed back yeah exactly um so presumably one of the ohio's is gonna be interesting and i do join the state of ohio just as a human being who exists in the world but my current (laughs) like bellwether seat is I'm very interested in Virginia too. Uh, okay. It's the Virginia beach based seat. It's Biden plus two with the redrawing. And it's the kind of seat the Democrats are going to have to win if they want to have a chance of winning the house. Right. Because uh, if they can't win a D2 or Biden plus two with an incumbent in a state that, you know, outside of, you know, them botching the 2021 campaign has been pretty good for them recently in a seat that's trending their way, then they're going to have a bad night. And yeah, that's the kind of seat where they got to win that. Um, I'm also going to be very interested in all the Pennsylvania districts, but we don't have the maps there and like whatever seat, like whatever the, whatever the like uh, swing outer Pittsburgh seat is going to be the one currently uh, what's currently Pennsylvania 17 represented by Connor Lamb. That's going to be interesting. And then how they deal with all the Scranton, Allentown, Philadelphia suburbs, all of the basically all of eastern Pennsylvania is going to be super fascinating. And depending on how you redraw it, you could get four competitive seats out of Pennsylvania. And I think all of those are going to be fascinating. Yeah, uh, especially because it's going to come on uh, the coattails of a very what seems to be a fairly competitive Senate race, right? Yeah, exactly. And like I, you know, I I think if Democrats want to have a good night in the House, especially given that the Pennsylvania results, I kind of think they're going to need good results for Connor Lamb and Jerry Beasley at the Senate level in Pennsylvania and uh, North Carolina or John Fetterman if he wins the primary in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Just because uh, with the North Carolina maps, 
maybe potentially, I kind of think probably, but we'll just say potentially uh, getting tossed. If you create a bunch of marginal seats, competitive seats in North Carolina, you could see a situation where if Sherry Beasley, even if she only loses by one or two, if she can boost black turnout, you could see two or three hedge seats change hands based on on how on how good that black turnout operation is. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, Democrats should probably still focus on the statewide races, especially in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, just because winning some house seats, even if they lose narrowly statewide, would still be very valuable. I want to go back to the national idea and specifically the the Biden uh, approval rating for for you. What is the big consequence of a low approval rating? Is it the fact that Biden can't go out and campaign in the way that a popular president could? Is it the fact that the the only thing the media will talk about is the fact that things are are are, are not great, or is that just? kind of a consequence of the fact that the national mood is sour and they don't want to vote for more of the party in power. So it's slightly the the latter, which is just like, if Biden's approval is pretty bad, then that means that people aren't really going to want to vote for Democrats. But also it's the fact that uh, midterms are lower turnout than presidential elections. Black yeah. turnout is especially volatile in midterms. Part of the reason Democrats had a very good 2018 and uh, not good at all 2014 or 2010 is that black turnout held up a lot better in 2018 than it did in either 2010 or 2014. Um, This is my favorite factoid of all time, but Mitt Romney got a higher share of the white vote in Colorado and Florida in 2012 than Cory Gardner or Rick Scott would in 2014. But Hmm. Rick Scott and Cory Gardner won because the share of the electorate that was white spiked as black and Hispanic turnout dropped. And so if you have another midterm where Democrats are not in getting their voters out, if Biden is this unpopular figure, he's not going to be able to rally black and Hispanic turnout in the way that Democrats need him to. And that puts that 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 limits his ability to be a useful campaigner for his party. Even if he gets out of the White House more, like he said he wanted to, maybe people just need to see him more, Evan. I mean, yeah, but I don't like him going out. Like he needs to rally the approval before I think he needs, like he needs to get out of the White House to rally the approvals and yeah. then start campaigning. He needs to do some stuff. He needs to make an argument <laughs> for a legislative agenda, right? He needs to... Like, honestly, the only reason I defend the voting rights thing is because it was least him doing something. And like, I can't have been saying for months he needs to do shit and then yeah. get frustrated with him when he tries something. Right. It wasn't the greatest idea, but like, I don't I just don't understand why there's not like an executive action on guns or or exe- more executive action on climate or hell, because I know he has, you know, a decent record of climate EOs. Talk about them more. Highlight them. Do a summit. Yeah. Do a climate summit in the White House tomorrow, next week. Call all the call the the biggest leaders in uh, green energy, right? Call Trudeau. Ask him to pitch in. He'll do it for you, right? Yeah. Find something. Find some way to highlight the climate stuff. Find some way to highlight all of the. You know, there has been a record amount of racial diversity in new federal hires. There's been unprecedented support for black small businesses. Uh, 
the judges that Biden's putting on the bench, incredibly diverse, right? Yeah. Highlight your accomplishments to Hispanic and black voters whose your approvals are like 40 points down from their, from how they voted for you. Like they don't, they're not happy at all. And the problem is, is that you can like, you can just straight up right off Georgia, Nevada and Arizona. If you don't get the minority turnout you need, like you can just straight up right off three states. And even if we think, well, Democrats aren't winning the house anyways, so whatever uh, you want to be able to confirm a 2023 Supreme court seat that opens up. Hmm. Yeah, you need those seats. Well, yeah, and that's you know I'll tell you what I'm I'm uh, we're, we're, we're going to extend your time here. You're you're coming back on Friday and you're going to talk about the Senate because, like you just mentioned, those three seats very key, very competitive Senate contests uh, that will come up. So one one last thing here on the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy would be the new Speaker of the House. Are we entering into the twilight? Of Nancy Pelosi, from your perspective, if you were to bet that Nancy Pelosi will uh, uh, still be leading her party in the in the minority by 2022, would you? Nancy Pelosi will leave Congress in a 2023 special election. She had to promise that 2020 would be her last term as speaker anyways. Yeah. And if she loses, there's no way in hell she has the vote to stay on as minority leader. Uh, and so it's going to be Hakeem Jeffries is going to be the next leader. And is Nancy Pelosi going to stick around as some random backbencher? No, she's only running this time. Like I'm, I'm convinced the only reason she was even running for re-election this time is a Paul Ryan's retirement was basically a neon sign on the Vegas Strip saying we're losing the house, guys. Yeah, but also, uh, it's a lot easier to control who replaces her if it's the only if she's thing still Democratic elected. money. If she wins and then gets to set her retirement date, gets to work with Newsom on setting the special election timing, and also she gets to focus her energy and gets to tell her donors and use whatever money she has left, uh, you know, whatever string she still has in democratic politics to anoint a successor as opposed to risking a messy primary under California's current, you know, top two, top two rules. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I don't think she. I don't think she stays through the next Congress. I really don't. So this is the the the, the beginning of the end for 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 Pelosi. She she will she will relinquish. I mean, I guess like you said, she doesn't have the votes uh, uh, to be to be the minority leader. Uh, uh, is there anybody else? Is there any value play beyond uh, Jeffries to be minority leader for the Democratic side? In your opinion, I'm going to argue that the value play is Steve Scalise to be the next speaker because I don't think House Republicans really want McCarthy to be speaker. Really. I listen to some of the find some of the anonymous quotes given about about uh, Kevin McCarthy from Republicans. They don't love him. They really don't love him. I mean, but is it is it the job of the 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 somebody in his position to be loved? Like not everybody loves Pelosi. Yeah, but uh, there are not doubts about the uh, intellectual caliber of Nancy Pelosi that have been raised about. Kevin McCarthy and especially if the GOP win like I think if the GOP win like a, a, a sort of like overwhelming majority he's kind of stuck there because he's the guy who won you the majority but yeah. Republicans are talking themselves into a wave and it could be a wave into the popular vote and they could win the Senate or whatever but if the maps sort of preclude them from a big result and it's a fairly narrow sort of 225 210 like house majority 
I don't know that McCarthy would be able to handle that. And I do wonder if there would be a sort of draft Scalise faction that yeah. would potentially sort of make the case that McCarthy ain't the guy to deal with this kind of narrow majority. You need someone who's got more experience, who's well-respected on all factions of the party. I can see it. I mean, McCarthy is obviously the favorite to be the next speaker, but I think yeah. Scalise to be next speaker would be the value play I'd like as opposed to another Democrat over Hakeem Jeffries to be minority leader. God help anybody who has a limited uh, lead in the house. I mean, like it is just such a volatile place right now. <laughs> I can't imagine anybody doing it effectively. In fact, the one thing I can say for Pelosi, especially after we've watched what Schumer's done in the Senate, she's done a pretty good job of protecting everybody. Like, yes, things have gotten dicey in the moment, but at the very least, she hasn't brought things up that were not going to succeed she pushed her agenda as far as she could. Like, I, I actually, you know, and maybe it's by by comparison, but I, I don't think that she's done terrible considering the hand she was dealt, at least, you know, legislatively. Yeah, I mean, the 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 only real question is, like, I get that she had to because she promised the progressives, but I don't understand the point of the House Build Back Better vote because you knew it was DOA anyways. But other than that, she's done very well with, a you know, tenuous majority to say the least. So, I, I think that was that was yeah. her playing hot potato. That was just saying, like, you want to know what? Now you guys deal with it. We want everybody to be asking the Senate about this. We did our job. It's in your hands now. Go do it. When you're ready to send us back a bill that we can vote on, then please go ahead and do it. But uh uh but even then it's like, yeah, I, I agree with you. It was totally DOA, but also it protected her caucus from having more people yelling at each other. Uh all right, Evan uh, of course, you write for The Lines. You have a Substack. People can find that by searching for your name, Evan Scrimshaw. And uh, we're going to bring you back on Friday talking about the Senate. Sounds good. Appreciate this. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. PX3Guest.com is where you go if you want to tell Evan he did a good job. You want to email the show? It is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is PX3Tweets. Our Twitch is PX3Live. Monday, Wednesday, Friday in our morning uh, streams there. Our newsletter, infrequent though it might be, is found at px3newsletter.com. Our podcast is px3podcast. Our merch is at politicsmerch.com. Hey, you want to support me with a one-time donation? You can do so. PayPal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20. Our cash app is px3cash. Our checks are P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 787-15. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184. Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get the bonus content for this program at our Patreon. TakePoliticsSeriously.com, $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week. That gives you the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show. where We cover all the Sunday programs, set the course for the week, and then the late edition, our Thursday podcast, which is the latest news that we cover. Of course, our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Including Idris Arzalandian, DJ Caddy Mac, Meister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, Dakin Sayani, Lay Admiral Flapjack, 
Utah, Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicery, 70s TV salesman or spy? Do you really invoke Gloria Young for king of the new world order? Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dotcom Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Diana's Scathing, sca- <laughs> Diana's Scathing Scowls. There we go. Double K Ranch, ye old pinball shop, John. Snuffy's off Route 44, Super Zoomy, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Richard, D-Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, The Gen, J-Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? Pretty simple. Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $10 tier. Ba-boom. You're in there the next episode. Just that simple. We will be back on Friday. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. They are talking, even as we speak, about politics, but this is the only show that dares discuss. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.